So this is week number three in our four-week sermon series called The Story. And we've been walking through the entire Bible uh, in four weeks. Um, and the way we've been doing it is by looking at four major events, four major kind of pivot points in the entire story of the Bible. If you view the Bible as one story, you could break it down like this. There's the creation, there's the fall, there's the rescue, and then there is the final restoration of all things which we await in our future. That's the story of the Bible. Now, there's more to it than that, uh, but if you want to break it down simply and view it as one story, as we are trying to do for this sermon series, then this is kind of a, a helpful way to look at the Bible. And maybe you feel like you don't know the Bible very well, and your coworker asks you, what is the Bible about? And you're fumbling all over yourself, and you're like, well, I haven't been following Jesus all that long. I'm not really sure what to say. I would encourage you to kind of go back to this. Be like, well, the Bible is one story that goes from creation, everything was good, fall, everything became bad, but then there was a rescue initiated by God that eventually leads to the restoration of all things. That's what the Bible is about. So today, we're going to cover that third idea, that of rescue. So let's pray, and then we'll dive into God's word together. Lord, I pray uh, that you would speak to us from your word, that the power and the beauty of your re rescue plan would be apparent in our lives, in our community, in our neighborhood. For your glory and for our good, in Jesus' name I pray, amen. So yesterday there was a, what appears to be an anti-Semitic beating of someone in our neighborhood. As you know, we have a large population of Orthodox Jews who live right here in Crown Heights, and one was apparently targeted because he was Jewish. He was beaten and very nearly killed for no reason except that he was Jewish. A week ago, a man set himself on fire in Prospect Park committing suicide. He was an environmentalist, and uh, he felt like we were destroying the planet with fossil fuels, so he decided to make a statement and burn himself to death, and he wrote a letter to the New York Times and a bunch of different organizations expressing that this is what we are doing to the planet. He does it to himself. Of course, those are local stories that have affected us just within the last week. But when we look, when we kind of step back and look at our country, we see lots of other problems, lots of other issues and troubles. We see political dysfunction. We see a lot of anger and angst and discontent on social media. Everybody's either mad at one another on Facebook or they're coveting other people's life on Facebook because everybody has a perfect life, especially on Instagram. We've seen large-scale devastation with hurricanes in Texas and Puerto Rico. We've seen problems on a local scale, on a national scale, on a global scale. This is the effect of what Woodley preached about last week, that that major pivot point in creation's history that we call the fall. 
God originally created everything, and it was perfect. But as Woodley preached last week, humanity squandered it. We, we traded our, uh, our inheritance for a mess of porridge. And as a result, we got a curse upon planet Earth. And all of these things, this from the beating yesterday here in Crown Heights to the, to the tension you might feel in your own life as you face struggles at work and in your relationships and in your housing situations. As we look at the, the larger national struggles that our country faces, and then as we, as we look at these natural disasters, everywhere we turn, we see evidence of what Woodley preached on last week. Humanity has fallen. And the, and the effects of that fallenness doesn't just affect me, it affects the entire universe. The Apostle Paul said that creation is groaning under the weight of sin's curse, longing for a day when everything that is bad will be made good, when everything that is wrong will be made right again. So if the first two points of the Bible story are creation and fall, and all we have to do is wake up and look out the window and we see evidence of fallenness, or even better yet, we just have to look in the mirror and see evidence of fallenness. What's the third point of the story? And it's this idea of rescue. It can be summed up in, in, in two important words, but God. You see, humanity was hurtling towards disaster. We are in the midst of disaster. And no matter how good things get on our local level or national level or global level, we're always in the midst of disaster. We're always in the midst of chaos and despair and death. Because of this thing that we call the fall that Woodley shared about last week. But God did something to fix all of these problems. You see, all of these problems stem from one single greater problem. At the end of, of the text that Woodley shared on last week, it says that Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden. And they're to the east of Eden. And there is, a, there is an angel with a whirling sword guarding the entrance to Eden. Keeping humanity out of the presence of God. You see, all of the problems that have happened in our world, everything from the, from the, from the curse of sin upon the planet to the, to the disruption of relationships that we have in our lives and in our country and in our world, all of it stems from the fact that we have been removed from the presence of God. Because back in Genesis 1, when we talked about creation, we saw that we were created to be in the presence of God. We were created for communion with our creator. But at the end of chapter 3, we're, we're on the outside of the garden, trying to knock on the door, trying to get back in. And there is an angel with a flaming sword saying, no, you have squandered your chance. You have squandered your access to the presence of God. And because we don't have this access to God's presence, all of these other things happen. And so it's a ripple effect. The fall has a ripple effect and sin just kind of cascades into every sphere and every facet of human life and human existence. But it all goes back to the fact that we are not walking in the garden with our creator. But God initiates a rescue plan. And that's what we're talking about today, is God's rescue plan. Now, I don't want you to freak out, but today I'm preaching 
from Genesis all the way through the book of Acts. Okay? Now, it's not going to be a 27-hour sermon. Don't worry. It's going to be about the same as all of our others. But we're going to hit some major highlights from Genesis through the book of Acts to help you understand God's one rescue plan. And then next week, we're going to finish it out with the restoration. And we'll be in Revelation chapter 21. God's rescue plan starts with the verse that Woodley ended with last week. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. It starts with a promise. And I believe we have that verse up on the screen. God said, I will put hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. God told Eve that she would be the mother of all living, that she would have descendants, but there would be a war between her descendants and the serpent. But eventually there would come a hero. Eventually there would come a rescuer. One who would be wounded by the serpent, but who would deal a death blow to that serpent. It's the first hint that we ever have in the Bible of the story of the Messiah, the story of the, the heroer, the rescuer. In fact, all of the Bible builds upon this promise right here. Everything from this point on is about when is this hero going to come? When is this when is this titan figure going to come who's going to crush the head of the serpent? The serpent that is that is deceived Eve, the serpent that is that is tempted Adam and so that Adam plunged the whole world into sin and chaos. That serpent is warring against humanity. When is our hero going to come? God's rescue plan begins with a promise. The promise that a hero is coming. He is coming and he will be born as a descendant of Eve, the seed of the woman. The woman's descendant will come and will crush the serpent's head. This is, this is the hope that Adam and Eve emerged from that garden with. And so even though they were on the outside, even though they were, were cut off from the presence of God, and there was that angel, the, the cherubim, with the, with the flaming sword keeping them out, they had hope that they would get back into the presence of God. I even think that they hoped it would be in their generation. Or not their generation, but in their lifetime. Because when they had Cain, in chapter 4 and verse 1, when Eve names her son, she says, I have gotten a man from the Lord. And, and the, way it's, the way you can kind of read it in Hebrew, as the book of Genesis was originally written, it almost seems like she thinks that this is the hero. This is the Messiah. We had a son. This is the one. He's come to rescue us. He came to rescue literally his mom and dad and to crush the serpent's head. But she quickly found out when that son killed another son that this promise, it was still good, but it might take a lot longer to be fulfilled, maybe even longer than her own lifetime. And so Adam and Eve, they're outside of the garden. They're following God. They're believing that this hero will come. But they die off in faith, never having seen the fulfillment of this promise. Next, I want us to go to Abraham. Now, we preached on the life of Abraham uh, several months ago. So some of you will be familiar with this story. But I'd like us to look at Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. God calls Abraham. 
This is very crucial to understanding the entire Old Testament. And I recognize that sometimes as Christians, we read the New Testament and it talks about the church. And then we get confused when we read the Old Testament. It's talking about Israel. So I'm hoping that this sermon can help us understand how the two link together. Probably won't answer all your questions, though. But maybe a few of them. God said to Abraham, go out from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. These verses are so crucial, so foundational to helping us understand the entire story of God's rescue. Because what God does is at the, at the, after the flood, there was this thing called the Tower of Babel, and there were about 70 tribes, 70 families of people on planet Earth, and God picks one of them, Abraham's family. He picks that family, it's what we would later come to know as the people of Israel, the Jewish people. But he picks this one family out of all the 70 tribes on planet Earth. He picks that one, not for their own benefit, but so that all peoples on Earth will be blessed through them. So God picks Abraham, and he is blessed to be a blessing. Most, most students of God's word throughout the last couple of thousand years, since the time of Christ, we've understood that this is a reference to Jesus. This is a reference to this hero, this Messiah, that through Abraham is going to come this hero, this rescuer, and he's not just coming to bless the Jews, but he's coming to bless all people, all of these 70 nations, these 70 tribes that had just been mentioned at the Tower of Babel. So you've got Adam, you've got Eve, they're kicked out of the garden, they're, they're cut off from God's presence, but God renews a promise of hope and rescue to Abraham. And he says, Abraham, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to narrow the focus. With, with Adam, the focus is universal, all humanity. But with Abraham, it's like he, there's a funnel. And God narrows the focus. He says, now I'm going to focus on one people, one family, one ethnic tribe, the Jewish people. But I'm not picking them for their sake. I'm picking them so that the blessing can flow out of the Jewish people to all of the other tribes, to all of the other families of the earth. That's what this verse says. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. In these three verses, God promises Abram. He promises him land. He promises him descendants. And he promises a blessing. That they would be blessed by God, but that they in turn would bless all humanity. The rescue plan of God was flowing through Adam and through Eve and through their descendants. And then specifically, the, the scope gets tightened here. Now the redemption plan, now the rescue plan is going to flow through Abraham and his descendants. So now God has locked himself in, as it were, to working through the Jewish people. So that's the promise. That's Abraham. But if you know the story of the Bible, and we're not going to cover every point of the Old Testament, that would take us way too much time. Abraham's descendants eventually got themselves into slavery in a place called Egypt. And God had to go to great lengths to liberate his people, his descendants, and we call that the Exodus. They were liberated from Egypt. God sent a bunch of plagues. God sent a hero, a hero who was kind of like a, a foreshadowing 
of the great hero who would come because Moses was a great hero. He was a great rescuer, but he wasn't the one that was predicted in Genesis chapter three and verse 15. Moses didn't come and deal a, a death blow to death. He didn't crush the serpent's head. He did a lot of good things. He rescued his people from bondage and from slavery in Egypt, but he comes and he sets God's people free and God leads his people out. And at Mount Sinai, he gives them the law. He gives them the Ten Commandments. And here's what he says in Exodus chapter 19. He says, Moses went up to the mountain to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you must say to the house of Jacob and explain to the Israelites. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you will carefully listen to me and keep my covenant, you will be my own possession out of all the peoples, although the whole earth is mine, and you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. These are the words that you are to say to the Israelites. So God brings his people out of bondage and he gathers them around the fearsome Mount Sinai. And it says that God is up top and there's like lightning flashing and it's scaring and the, the, the people are scared. They're like, what is going on on top of the mountain? And Moses is up there and he's getting the Ten Commandments and God is saying, among other things, he's saying this to Moses. And what God is doing is he's gathering his people and he's giving them a vocation. He's giving them a calling. Their calling is that they are to be his people and they are to mediate his presence to the nations. They are to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. They are to live as a community in such a way that the Canaanite nations around them in the land to which they are going would see them and would see a different kind of lifestyle, the lifestyle embodied in the Ten Commandments. Yet they would look at that and they would say, man, all these gods that we've been worshiping, these gods and goddesses, these statues that we built, like, they don't seem to be that impressive compared to the God who is producing and motivating this kind of lifestyle. God's people were called to be a contrast society in the midst of Canaanite culture. And he was preparing them in this moment as they stand at Mount Sinai. He's preparing them to move into the promised land. He's preparing them to, to receive their blessing. And he's calling them that here is how you will live. So remember, God's rescue plan has unfolded from the garden because humanity is outside the garden. There's an angel in the way with a flaming sword. We can't get to God. So God, with his plan that he had devised even before sin entered the world, God initiates this rescue plan. And from Adam and Eve, they have descendants. And God narrows the focus at Abraham. And Abraham's people are liberated in Egypt through a mighty deliverer, the one called Moses, and Moses brings God's people to him upon the mountain, and God says, I have set you apart. It is through you that the Messiah will come. It is through you, through the Jewish people, that the hero will be born. It is through you that the rescuer will come to enact a final liberation. This, this liberation you've seen from Exodus, this ain't nothing. Yeah, it was bad in, in, in Egypt, but it's far greater throughout the world, especially your spiritual condition. You saw what I did with those plagues, but I got something better in store. 
a truly great defeat whereby my coming rescuer, the coming hero, will crush the serpent's head. You haven't seen anything yet. But that exodus, that liberation, is a foreshadowing. It's a picture of what's to come. So all of this is, is major material from the Old Testament. You might read these stories, and, and they're kind of, especially if you grew up in the church, you might know the stories, but you might not know how they fit together. That's what we're trying to help you understand today, how these stories fit and interlock together into God's single rescue plan. So there's the promise from Genesis 3.15. The hero is coming, and he will crush the serpent's head. There is Abraham. Who was, who was decreed by God, chosen by God to be the father of the Jewish people. There is the Exodus where God's people are liberated by Moses or ultimately by God through Moses. And then you have the people of Israel set up in the promised land. So God brought Israel into that land. It took them a while. It didn't happen right away after Mount Sinai, but eventually God got them to the promised land and he set them up. He set up Israel as his countercultural kingdom as a contrast society to show the world what life was supposed to be like following the one true God, the Most High. But Israel sinned. They didn't stay in the land for forever because they violated God's law, and so God sent them into exile. So part of the Old Testament, when you read about Israel, is, is they're, they're in the land that God gave them, and they're in this awesome kingdom ruled by guys like David and Solomon and, and other kings, some of them good, some of them bad. More of them were bad than good, seems like. And so part of the Old Testament is that. And then part of the Old Testament is, is uh, they're not in Israel anymore. And you read it and you're like, I don't understand. Like, Israel's not in Israel. That doesn't make sense to me. But the people have been dispersed. They have been scattered because what's happened is the enemies of Israel have come in and God has given them permission to take over Israel. It's like God said, Israel, you have sinned, so I'm going to invite your enemies to come and enslave you. That's what happened. So the Assyrians come in, the Babylonians come in, the Persians come in, different enemies of Israel come in throughout the, the centuries, and they bring God's people into captivity. And so God's people, who have been called to live this different kind of lifestyle embodied by the Ten Commandments, to live as a contrast society, showing the world a different way of life, Suddenly, they're scattered to the far corners of the Mediterranean. They're all over. They're, they're in Babylon. They're in Greece. They're in places they'd rather not be. But they don't have any choice in the matter. They have been enslaved because as a people, they have sinned. It doesn't necessarily mean that every Israelite was sinning or had turned its back on God. But as a people, they had. And so God kicked them out of the land. But in the midst of it all... God had a purpose for Israel, and that's what I want to show you on the screen. In the book of Isaiah, God said, It is not enough for you to be my servant, raising up the tribes of Jacob and restoring the protected ones of Israel. I will also make you a light for the nations, to be my salvation to the ends of the earth. God had a plan that was very easy to lose sight of, especially if you were an Israelite who was in captivity. You'd be like, this political system is so unjust. I hate the Persians. Like, why do they have to have their boot on the back of my neck? Like, this stinks. And you're in slavery. The, the temple has been raided. The house of God has been looted. 
But God has a plan in the midst of it, and he is accomplishing this plan, and he's doing two things. One is he's preserving a remnant of the Jewish people because from the Jews is coming the hero. That means, when you think about it, God has locked himself in that he must have a Jewish hero to come because he said that he's going to be one of Abraham's descendants, and Abraham's descendants are the Jewish people. That means there has to be at least one Jewish man and one Jewish woman alive. There were a lot of threats to Israel's existence throughout the Old Testament. There were a lot of times where it seemed as if that promise was in jeopardy, where it was like, is what God said really going to happen? Because he said way back to Adam that there was going to come a hero who would crush the serpent's head, and then he narrowed it. And I mean, he backed himself into a corner pretty badly when he said it was going to be one of Abraham's descendants, and then not just Abraham's descendants, but, but one of Jacob's descendants and one of Joseph's descendants and, and from the tribe of Judah. And he kept narrowing it down, but then there were all these threats, and Israel was on the verge of being wiped out time and time and time again. And so what God does and what Old Testament history shows us is that God is intervening not just to save Israel. Yes, he does that, but he intervenes to ensure that his promise is fulfilled because the entire integrity of the story is at stake. Because if he doesn't save his people, there won't be able to be a rescuer. And if there's no rescuer, no one to stomp on the head of the serpent, there will be no rescue for you and I. So God is preserving the Jewish people so that he can preserve the possibility of a hero. And he's also preserving the Jewish people so that they can be a light to the nations. That's what's declared right here in Isaiah 49, 6. Israel's purpose was never just for themselves. They were blessed, just like we are. They were blessed to be a blessing. We haven't been saved for us. We have been saved for those outside the church. We have been saved for the benefit of those in our community, our neighbors, our friends, our coworkers. Don't hoard it. Don't hide your light under a bushel because that's not the point of it. We are to be a light to the nations just like Israel. Two more here, all right? Don't worry, we're going to be done soon. God gives this promise. We move forward to Abraham. We covered the Exodus, and we talked about Israel. Now, I realize I'm, I'm like jumping over entire parts of the Old Testament, trying to, trying to help us understand how it all fits together. If you have questions about particular things that I've skipped over, feel free to, to hit me up. The fifth idea here in this rescue story is that of the Messiah. The hero finally shows up. When God was ready, in the fullness of time, not a moment before, not a moment after, the Bible says in the fullness of time, a virgin conceives, which is pretty interesting because Genesis 3.15 hints at the idea of a virgin birth when it says the seed of a woman will conceive or the, the seed of a woman will come and crush the serpent's head. The first hint, perhaps, of the idea that this hero will come, this rescuer will come, but he won't have any ordinary origin. He won't have any ordinary lineage. He won't have a normal biological origin. He would come virgin born as the hero that his people Israel and larger than that, all the families of the earth have been waiting. Let's look at Luke 
chapter 4, verses 16 through 19. Jesus came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up. As usual, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and unrolling the scroll, he found the place where it was written. And here's what it says. He's reading from Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus sits down and he says, this has been fulfilled in, your, in front of you today. Because Isaiah said a long time ago that a hero would come to save his people, to free them from the effects of sin's curse. You don't have to wait anymore. Jesus is saying, you don't have to look anymore. The hero, the rescuer, what everything of, uh, has been about since humanity stood at the edge of Eden, looking longfully back to the center of that garden. Everything has been about this. It has been about the rescuer showing up. And he, he closes that Isaiah scroll. It's like he drops the mic and he walks away and he says, today this has been fulfilled. This is it. This is what you have been waiting for. He offers rescue. He offers hope. I want to show you some verses from the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 3. Paul said, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, since there is no distinction. No distinction between Jews and Gentiles. Everybody's the same in God's eyes. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by his grace through the redemption, or you could substitute the word rescue, through the rescue that is in Christ Jesus. God presented him as an atoning sacrifice in his blood, received through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be righteous and declare righteous the one who has faith in Jesus. There's a lot in these verses, and I'm not going to be able to parse it all out, but basically, this rescue has shown up in the person of Jesus, and God offers his rescue to humanity through his son, through Jesus, through the rescuer. And he offers rescue from the problems that plague us, Jesus' rescue sets in plan or sets in motion a plan to end all of the things that, that plague humanity, the things that we started by talking about, the, the hurricanes and, and the, the suicides and, and the racism and the, the poverty, all of the, the issues that weigh us down. We can see the, the world is groaning under sin's curse. Jesus has set in motion through his crucifixion and through his resurrection, he has set in motion a plan to rescue all of that. But the way that he does it is what Paul talks about in Romans 3. By offering himself as our substitute on the cross because humanity has sinned. Humanity is at war with God. Ever since the garden, we have been at war with God. And the problem was that God was in the garden and we were on the outside and we didn't have God's presence with us as we were created to be. But because we were sinners, we couldn't experience God's presence. So God's solution was simple. He sent himself as a person, as a flesh and blood human being so that God's presence 
would be among humanity. And then God took our sins, which disqualified us from being in the presence of God, and God took our sins and put them upon himself in the person of his son. And then he judged his son on the cross in our place as our substitute so that God could suddenly say and be justified in saying it. You who are sinful, human beings, who do not deserve to be in my presence, you suddenly have access to the garden once again. You suddenly have access to the throne room of grace again because the issue that disqualified you has forever been settled. Because Jesus has paid for our sin debt upon the cross. And the effects of that offer salvation to our soul, but it also offers salvation to the entire universe. And God sets in motion through the cross and through the resurrection a plan that will lead to the entire universe rejoicing when the weight of sin's curse is lifted. This is what we'll talk about next week when we talk about restoration. Last point in this unfolding rescue plan is that of the church. Acts 1.8. I should have it up on the screen. Jesus said to his disciples as he's starting the church, he said, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The book of Acts is the story of the church obeying that. Jesus said, all right, I have unleashed this incredibly cool and beautiful rescue plan upon planet Earth. Now I'm going to go back to heaven. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit will, will empower the church. Now the focus is not upon Israel. Now the focus is upon a people from every nation, every tribe, and every tongue. Remember I said that Abraham was picked out of the 70 nations on planet Earth, the 70 cultures on planet Earth. Abraham was picked so that the other 69 could be blessed. That happens in the church. God unites the, the disparate peoples of the earth, all of these cultures and nations and tribes and tongues, and he brings them together in one people. One new humanity, Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2. And he gives us this mission of joining in his rescue and proclaiming to a hurting humanity that Jesus is Lord and offers rescue, redemption, hope. That's the story from Genesis to Acts. I know I've covered a lot. I've covered a lot. But I want you to consider this quote from Mike Bird. He's a, he's a New Testament scholar in Australia. He said, what is at stake in the gospel? And the word gospel means good news. What is at stake in the gospel is the entire universe, not just my particular soul. The goal of salvation is to return humanity and creation to the state of peace and harmony that it enjoyed with God before the fall. Sometimes in America, we, we really like to turn the focus on me. It's all about me, me and God. And that's okay. To a, a certain extent, God is after your soul. He's after your salvation. But he's after something far bigger than that. And sometimes when we get discouraged over how things are going, it's because we have taken our eyes off the grandness of the story. We think, man, my life is not going so well right now. But you and I are just, we're, um, we're what, what do they call it? Uh, for those of you who are in film, the, the, um, 
the extras in a movie. We are extras in a movie. We are extras in God's story. And there is this massive and beautiful epic that is unfolding, and you and I get to be a little bit of it. And this story unfolds. It unfolds in every culture for thousands of years now. And you and I are privileged to play a role in this story. And it's not about us. Yes, we benefit from it. We are blessed by it. And our souls are saved because of this story. But we are unleashed for something better. And God is at work in a myriad of ways in this universe reconciling the nations. Indeed, through Christ, reconciling eventually all of creation unto himself. That's what God is up to. There's no story grander than that. There is no rescue plan grander than that. I want to propose three ways to respond to this story. So I want you to pull out your card. I told you that we would look at it again at the end. Again, with your name on the front, I want you to consider jotting down one of these three responses, or maybe something else, and then dropping it in the offering basket when we pass it in a few moments. Three possible responses to this rescue plan. First is to accept the rescue. Maybe some of you are, who are here feel like you've never understood God's rescue plan before. You've been coming to church for a while. Maybe you've been coming to church all your life, but you don't feel like you have accepted God's rescue plan for you that you haven't been rescued, that you're still at war with God. I, I talked about how our sins separated us from God and that on the cross, God had to judge our sins. If you have never accepted that sacrifice on your behalf as your only way into heaven, then you are still outside of Eden. You are still outside the presence of God. My friend, I would beseech you. I would beg you. If that is you, accept the rescue. It's like if you're drowning and somebody throws a, a life preserver into the water and says, grab it, hold on for dear life, and I will rescue you. You'd be a fool to turn them down. We are drowning in an ocean of sin. We are drowning in the midst of a fallen world. And our God, our creator, has stepped into our fallenness. And he throws us a life preserver and he says, I will rescue you. And I have devised this incredible plan through the cross and through that empty tomb. I have devised a plan to rescue you. But you, you've got to grab the life preserver. I'd encourage you, if you're here today and you have not embraced God's rescue for your soul, to do that today. Second, I think we should worship the rescuer. I don't know about you, but when I, when I see this grand epic, I want to worship God. Like when, when you see, um, you know, a spectacular movie, you might walk away thinking, man, that actor was incredible or the, the writer or the director, man, they did some amazing work and you admire the artistry. You admire the beauty of it and you walk away and you're, you're impressed. When we see God's grand epic story of rescue unfolding from Genesis throughout all of scripture it should cause us to worship. It should cause us to drop to our knees and to cry holy. It should cause us to, to, to stand up and shout and to raise our hands and to dance 
and to celebrate and worship the rescuer. Third, I think we should be motivated to join the rescue. This is what Jesus told the church in the book of Acts. He commissioned them not to hide their light under a bushel, but to let Israel be a light to the nations. This is the vocation of God's people. It always has been. What job you have, that's not as important to God as whether or not you are living up to your vocation, which is to glorify him by being a light to the nations. How does God accomplish all of this? Well, he's, he's orchestrating all of these things behind the scenes. And we can take comfort and encouragement. When I feel overwhelmed in life because something's not going the way I think it should, whether whether it's in my job or whether it's with school, and I feel overwhelmed, I look at the grandeur of this story. And I'm like, all right, God is good, he's cool, he's big, he's vast. This is the story. The story is marching on. It's unfolding beautifully and with power. I can trust God. I can trust the author of this story, the initiator of this rescue plan. Many of you know that my father passed away about six weeks ago at the age of 64 after a brief bout with cancer. And so that has caused me to think about death and life a little bit differently than I did before, at least causing me to think about it more often than I did before. And that's why I want to make sure that I emphasize today the importance of an empty tomb outside of Jerusalem. You see, this rescue plan doesn't end on Good Friday where Jesus dies on a cross. It's important. And we can never, um, we can never underemphasize the cross, but we must also emphasize the fact that God's rescue plan includes the defeat of death. And that happens starting on Easter. When Jesus walked out of the tomb and crushed that serpent's head. As one artist said, he took one breath and put death to death. God's rescue plan is good, it is glorious, and it is beautiful. From the time when we were exiled from the garden until the time when Jesus exiled death from the tomb. God's plan is unfolded with beauty, with power, and with majesty. And it's a rescue plan that envelops us all. It's a rescue plan that is moving throughout this universe. And it's a rescue plan in which the rescuer stands and invites you to come and embrace his rescue. We're going to end this portion of our service by receiving communion. Because communion is a, is a time in which we look back and we look forward. We remember the death of Christ upon the cross. We remember what he did to rescue us. But we also look forward because Jesus said, do this often until I come, until I return. The only reason that we can celebrate this is because Jesus is alive. We're not just celebrating a death, we're celebrating a resurrection, we're celebrating an eventual return. 
It's, it's almost as if when we observe this ancient ritual meal that we are retelling the entire story of the Bible in kind of miniature as we gather around the table. So what we're going to do is we're going to play a song called His Heart Beats. And over the course of this song, I think it's about four or five minutes long, I want to invite you to come and to receive communion. We're not going to take it all together. I just want you to come up at some point during this service, during this song. If you're a, fo if you're a follower of Jesus, this is only for God's family, but if you are a follower of Jesus, I want to encourage you to come and receive communion at some point during this song. And then we will pray together at the conclusion of this song. So guys, if we can go ahead and play his song. Sean, I think Lorenzo will need your help. Lord Jesus, we ask that as we prepare to observe your broken body, your spilled out blood, we do so knowing that you are alive and that your rescue plan
Jesus, we are grateful that your heart beats right now. And that this blood that we have reflected upon through this cup, that your blood is coursing through your veins right now. Because you are not dead. You have crushed the serpent's head. You have initiated a plan of rescue for our souls and for the entire world. Lord, we revel in your grace. We celebrate your death. We celebrate your resurrection. And God, we stand poised with all the redeemed people of God from every nation, every tribe, and every tongue. We stand poised awaiting your return, longing for the day when you restore that which has been lost. Until then, we worship you we adore you. We join your rescue plan. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, I have a couple of announcements, and then we're going to wrap up our service um, at this time. Uh, if I could have Kevin to come and to receive our offering. Um, if you've got your response card, I want to ask you to drop that into the offering basket as it passes in front of you. What we do uh, with these offerings is we advance God's mission here in New York City and throughout the world. We give at least 10% of everything that we receive. We give it to support mission work in our city and throughout the world. So I want to encourage you to give, whether it's here or whether it's online at Mosaic Brooklyn, um, to be generous with your offerings. Okay, so in two weeks... We are celebrating our annual day of diversity. We have done this every year. Uh, one of my favorite Sundays of the year. Um, and we will be celebrating the diversity that God has given us as a church with close to 20 different national backgrounds represented in our church. We're going to celebrate that because God's rescue plan involved bringing us all together into one family. That's part of what the cross accomplished. So we're going to celebrate that uh, with a service designed to celebrate that, to reinforce that. And then at the conclusion of the service, we're going to have a potluck. It's what Baptists do. We eat. Uh, we're really good at it. So we want to ask you specifically to bring a dish from your culture, from your, your state or your country, wherever you're from. Bring something. If you don't cook, then, then use Seamless and, uh, and bring something 
that represents you and your people, and we will enjoy that uh, together after the service. Next week, though, uh, we'll be wrapping up our series, uh, The Story, uh, and I want to let you know that my uncle, uh, Dr. Mike Stallard, will be here um, to preach uh, the final sermon. I wanted to mention this because I know that many of you know or knew uh, my father, uh, and I didn't want you to be weirded out uh, next week when you walk in. My uncle is my dad's identical twin brother. So if you walk in and you see him and you think, I thought Stephen's dad passed away, um, it looks just like him, um, but it is, it is not him. So my uncle will be here um, to preach and to share with us next week. Uh, we have a parenting class. This is our third week in our six-week parenting series. It's going to start five minutes after the service right here at the back. Uh, we're going to watch a 28-minute video and then have about a 25-minute discussion about it and try to grow as parents today. We're talking about identity. How do we help our kids with identity? We're going to talk about cutting. We're going to talk about um, bullying. We're going to talk about how to raise up little girls and little boys and what the difference is and why does it matter and how do they become aware of their gender and confused about it. We're going to talk about all of these issues from a Christ-centered perspective. Um, last announcement that I have is that we asked you back in December when we had our annual members meeting, we asked you to pray about relocating our church to a better facility, not for the sake of comfort, but so that we could be better poised for mission in our community. And so that's why last Sunday, I let you know about the opportunity that was before us to relocate um, to the historic Black Lady Theater a block away on Nostrand Avenue. Asked you to spend the week praying and fasting, and I know that many of you have prayed and cried out and fasted from something over the course of this week. Um, and um, everyone I have talked to, every single person at Mosaic has, has said we need to go for it. Um, so this morning we informed our landlord, Mount Joy Baptist Church, um, that at the end of May, when our lease expires, uh, that we will not renew. Um, and so we have also informed the Black Lady Theater right before church. Um, I had to go to the grocery store to buy some coffee creamer for the table. And the theater was open, and so uh, I walked in and I talked to them. I said, we're ready to sign the lease. So I want to ask you to be in prayer this week. Um, this will mean that we have five more weeks meeting at this time and at this space before we transition to a Sunday morning service on Nostrand Avenue just a block away. We'll have lots of details. Um, this is a really exciting move. It is a much better space for those of you who were part of our parenting seminar. You have been in the space, um, but this is a much better space. It will be more comfortable. It will work for us, but comfort is not the goal. And I really, I'm going to say this a million times to try to make sure that we get it. We're not moving so that we have a more comfortable space. Our brothers and sisters in the persecuted church around the world, they meet under bridges, they meet in homes, they hide out from government. Um, comfort is not the goal. Having a nice building is not the goal. The goal is to have a building that will position us to reach those who are far from God. That's why we're moving to Nostrand Avenue. That's why we're moving to a Sunday morning service. So I want to ask you to pray. Also want to ask you to give. I know many of you have been giving sacrificially. You've been tithing. You've been giving so that we could make this move. And I want to ask you to continue to do that so we can make this move. And if you, if you are not giving... I just want to ask you to pray and ask God how you might be able to sacrifice financially to stand with your brothers and sisters, the other members here at Mosaic, um, so that we can make this relocation happen, so that we can reach more people who are far from God. Mosaic is a great family atmosphere, but God always wants his family to grow and to reach new brothers and sisters that we haven't met yet. All right? So that's why we're moving, and I want to ask you to pray with us about this this week. Pray that... Uh, 
the Lord will enable us to, to sign the paperwork, take care of all the legal stuff, um, and we will have lots of more information for you next week and, and in the next five weeks. Okay? All right, God bless you. You are dismissed. Parenting class starts in like three minutes. <laughs>